Hello and welcome to Session 6 of the 2022 WSC Spotlight, a comprehensive update on adjunctive sepsis and COVID-19 therapies. We have an amazing array of experts on the topic and the session is moderated by our very own Luis Antonio Gorordo del Sol. Luis, take it away. Hello everyone, I am Luis Gorordo and welcome back to the session number 6 of the World Sepsis Congress Spotlight. Uh, this session is called, uh, entitled, Update on Adjunctive uh, Sepsis and COVID-19 Therapies. And we are about to start with uh, Dr. Evangelos Jamarellos, who is a professor in internal medicine and director of infectious disease at National Capodistrian University of Athens and Medical School in Greece, and also president of the Hellenic Institute for the Se uh, Study of Sepsis and chairman of the European Sepsis Alliance. Thank you very much, Dr. Evangelos, uh, for your presentation. Well, thank you very much for your kind words. Thanks the organizers for inviting me to discuss about an akindra treatment in which COVID-19 patients uh, benefit the most from this treatment. This is my conflict of interest disclosure for this presentation. And before uh, going on with uh, my data, I would like to uh, remind to all of you that uh, Kinneret, uh, the uh, trade name of Anakinra, uh, was approved since 17th of December 2021 for the treatment of uh, adults uh, with COVID-19 pneumonia. And actually, uh, this is considered quite an achievement if you see at this uh, statistics. This is a, a search of clinicaltrials.gov as of 15 of December, 2021. And you see that by that time point, we had more than 7,000 trials that have been registered. And actually all these are trials of both vaccines and monoclonals and drugs for hospitalized patients. And by that date, the only drugs that were registered by the European Medicines Agency approved and European were three vaccines, three monoclonals, and for, for the management of hospitalized patients, remdesivir, dexamethasone, tocilizumab, and akinra. And this is quite astonishing because also it demonstrates how difficult and how complex the problem that we're dealing with. Because as a matter of fact, we have from more than 7,000 trials, only four drugs for hospitalized patients registered, and this is just a few months from now. So, although we consider COVID-19 to be a homogeneous disorder, as a matter of fact, it is extremely heterogeneous. And not all patients are the same, but however, we insist to consider that all the patients are the same. Imagine that in this circle are the patients who arrive at the emergencies of hospital, however, however not all of them are at risk. And as a matter of fact, for all the patients, we deliver to, set to them exactly the same treatment. And as a matter of fact, there are two end-ups, two probable outcomes for this patient. The first patient are, is the patient who arrives at the hospital. He's in need of oxygen. He deteriorates into severe respiratory failure. He ends up in the ventilator, and there, there is a great risk for death. The other scenario is that the patient, although he is discharged from hospital, is just phenomenically well. However, there is persistence of symptoms, work absenteeism, loss of productivity, and long-term morbidity and mortality. So what is another approach? Another approach is to stop treating patients in a horizontal way, but try to understand what are the personalized needs of each and every one, in other terms, from those who are in the circle, to recognize those who are at risk and to start immediate treatment, but when someone listens to at risks, what he has in mind is that he's in need of a type of biomarker that can tell who are the patients who will deteriorate. And of course, if this is the case, we need to focus on it. This is part of the truth. The real truth is that we don't want the biomarker not to tell us who's the patient who's at risk, but to inform us on the pathway leading the patient in other terms, to administer a treatment which is tailored for the needs of this patient in order to decrease mortality, decrease admission in the ICU, and improve cure rate. So 
So allow me to acquaint you what is happening for patients at COVID-19. This is the virus which is bound on the receptor. And as a, as a result of this, the, pay, the virus is internalized in the lung epithelial cells. The epithelial cells are destroyed through the release of danger-associated molecular particles. There are two big groups, two big families of danger-associated molecular patterns in the lung tissue. The first is alveolar. This is stuck on the cell membrane on epithelial cells, and it's released when epithelial cells are destroyed by the virus. The other dumps are intracellular constituents of uh, our epithelial cells. The, the most common is calprotectin. These are released and they stimulate the production of alpha-beta. Alpha-alpha and alpha-beta, they act on their, on their receptor, which is embedded on the cell membrane of the alveolar macrophage. And as a result of this, we have a pro-inflammatory reaction. However, the same cell is producing an endogenous antagonist which bounds on the receptor so that the uh, effect of alpha-alpha and alpha-beta is a bit attenuated. So what we are in need? We are in need of a strategy, a personalized strategy for which we have delivered the acronym SAY. In other terms, for patients who are with pneumonia, who are in need of either high flow or low flow oxygen, and who have concentrations of a biomarker with the acronym SUPAR, six nanogram or more, these are the patients for which the biomarker can tell us that they are under the attack of alpha-alpha and alpha-beta. Once we see that the biomarker is increased, we need immediately to start treatment with a biological that can scavenge both alpha-alpha and alpha-beta. And this exists, is the recombinant form of the endogenous antagonist of the receptor for which I was previously talked to you about. And the name of the drug is anakinra. These are data from the beginning of the pandemic. You see that at time zero, on the admission of time of the admission of the patients at the hospital, we measured for them the biomarker super. The acronym stands for soluble urokinase plasminogen activator receptor. And you see that the patients who have concentrations at the emergencies, well before any sign of ARDS appears, six or more, the next 14 days, day by day, they end up in the ventilator. And these data were further confirmed by two independent cohorts, one from 352 patients, another of more than 2,000 diabetic patients, showing that indeed, at the time of hospital admission, SUPAR can discriminate the patients who are at risk to deteriorate. Somebody else may ask, okay, what are the advantages of SUPAR? Could I have a biomarker that can give me exactly the same information in case when I live in a setting where SUPAR is not available? Actually, the advantage of SUPAR is that it integrates information coming from D-dimers, CRP, ferritin, IL-6. We know that all four of them are increased in, this, in our patients, but not all of them are increased at the same level. In other terms, if you integrate information which is coming from each of these four biomarkers, you end up with a predictive capacity similar to SUPAR. And with this four biomarkers, we form another sco score, which we call that scope score, and can give the same information on SUPAR. Let me go then back to what the SUPAR or the scope score is helping us. So from the moment we identify that, you start treatment with anakinra. And you see that in this phase two open label trial, that patients who receive standard of care and on top of anakinra, they're doing extremely better until day 14 compared to patients receiving only standard care. There is a 30% decrease of the risk to end up in the ventilator or to die. And this, of course, is translated to huge survival benefits. With this in mind, we addressed when we had the results of this phase two trial to the European Medicines Agency. And we received advice on how to design and conduct a pivotal phase three randomized clinical trial which we published last October at Nature Meds. This is the design of the trial, exactly the same population, patients randomized into treatment with placebo plus standard of care or an akinder plus standard of care, and standard of care contained dexamethasone, and the primary endpoint was the allocation to the 11th strata of the WHO CTS. This is the primary endpoint. 
And actually, what you see as a point is an odds ratio, a ratio that can tell you what are the chances to be allocated to a worse outcome if you receive anakindra compared to if you receive placebo. How this worked out, worse outcome is defined. In other terms, a patient after 11 days may belong to one of these groups. He may be either at gray, which means that the infection is fully resolved, or in green, which means that he remains at long COVID, or in yellow, which means that he remains hospitalized in the ward, or in orange, which means that he remains hospitalized in the ICU, or red, which means that unfortunately he has that. So the risk to be at the worst outcome compared to placebo is 0.36, which means in overall, 64% benefit coming from an akimba treatment. If we would like to focus on the two edges of the spectrum of the outcome, the one spectrum is to be fully resolved, fully cured, and this is increased by 64% with anakindra, or to remain at a critical state or being dead. And anakindra treatment offers a 54% protection. Someone may ask, but it's a biological. It has adverse events. Here is the comparison of the emergence of serious treatment, adverse events, and as you see, treatment with Akindra was protected. It was protected from serious infections and particularly from VAD. Why that? Because if the patient is protected to be admitted in the ICU and be ventilated, then the incidence of ventilator-associated pneumonia will go down. So in other terms, with the current standard of care for this type of patients, if we have two patients who will be fully recovered, we manage to increase them to five if we add an akinra. If we have one patient who's asymptomatic but remains PCR positive, we increase them to three if we add an akinra. If we have five patients at long COVID, we decrease them to three with an akinra. If we have two patients hospitalized, either in the ward or in the ICU, we decrease them by 50%. And if we have two patients who have died, we manage to save one of them from death. And then you may ask me, what is the positioning of the group? This is the course of the patient towards the ICU. At the beginning, you have a viral response, which is characterized by symptoms, where drugs like monoclonals or piravir are positioned there. Then patients progress into the pulmonary phase. They are admitted in the ward. They have decreased respiratory ratio, but not that much to, be, to lead them to the ARDS. And all of a sudden, the patient is in need of ventilation. He is admitted in the ICU. There he has ARDS or shock or renal failure. Both these categories of patients are in need of dexamethasone. The salizumab, the trials have shown that it's positioned when there are organ failures. But for patients who are at risk to progress and to be admitted from the general ward to the ICU, we need to screen all of them, either with SUPOM or with the four biomarkers which frame the scope score. And if these are increased, then we need immediately to trust our biomarker to save the patient from ICU admission and to give them an akindra. And with this approach, you see that the number needed to treat to achieve cure are four, to avoid being severe or death are 15, and this is equivalent to the treatment benefit of the more severe patients that tocilizumab provides. Thank you very much for your attention, and I'm looking forward to the discussion. Thank you very much, Dr. Evangelos Jamarelos. Uh, um, I have a couple of questions. You already uh, answered how to select the patient that is a candidate to have this treatment with Anakindra, like the safe strategy, SUPUR, and the other scores. And uh, which one would we use, or, or what's your criteria for starting? This treatment in a, uh, in general uh, patients with COVID, uh, is there an early warning system to say this patient will benefit more or something? The only way 
is for patients who are admitted with pneumonia at the emergencies. All of them, irrespective of what blood gases are telling, to screen them either for the four biomarkers of the scope score or with SUPAR. And if SUPAR is increased or the scope score is six or more, we need to start immediately treating. You know very well, and we know all of us very well, that what is really bizarre with this virus is that the virus is not waiting. All of a sudden, the patient deteriorates, and this is unpredictable. We have now a tool that tells us who's the patient who will get deteriorate. We need to trust her. We need to start, start treatment based on the biomarker and not to wait for clinical signs to present. Then it will be too late. We need to change a bit our mind. I understand that this is a bit different than the traditional approach, but early treatment is the only way to avoid the heterogeneity of the ICU, to avoid all these discussions that we have the last one and a half years. What are we doing if the patient is at a critical stage? The best approach is to avoid the patient to progress into critical illness. And this is the only way. Thank you. And another question is, uh, do you think that this line of drugs like Anakindra will soon be used for uh, another infection or another agents, another viral or bacterial uh, that generates sepsis? Are we close to use of? My impression is that uh, since we have this uh, uh, paradigm of early identification of the pro-inflammatory reaction, which, which will deteriorate the patient, We need to start trials with this frame of mind to use biomarker to tell us from the world for patients with borderline infections, who are those who will deteriorate and replicate the same approach. I believe that this is the future approach to go. In the ICU, the heterogeneity is far too high and it will become more and more difficult to help them with immunotherapy. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Evangelos Jamarelos, another, uh, and again, and we're going to continue with this session number six. And uh, I will introduce you now to Professor Alexander Blair. He is uh, in the Department of Intensive Care Medicine in Amsterdam uh, UMC in the Netherlands, and is a researcher a well-known researcher in this field. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Alexander Blair, uh, for your kind presentation and the, the audience is all yours. Thank you very much. And it's a pleasure uh, uh, to present here. Uh, and thanks again for the invitation. Uh, I'm thrilled uh, to share with you for the first time at the conference, uh, the phase three results of filobelimab in severe COVID-19. These are my conflicts of interest. So, of course, I would have hoped that COVID-19 would be part of the past, but we all know it's part of the present and the future. Uh, the mortality uh, rates remain high, 30 to 60% of patients admitted to the ICU, the severe critically ill patients are at risk of dying. Um, and this remains, I'm an intensivist myself, and in the last weeks, I still had to admit patients to the ICU with severe COVID-19. And it remains because uh, a part of the patients are not willing to be vaccinated, a part of the uh, people worldwide are not able to receive a vaccine. And of course, we also still have the immune compromised patient that may still develop severe COVID-19. And what we know right now, and actually already from the beginning, that there is a key role for complement in the development of severe COVID-19. And what do we have, which was also already shown in the, by the previous uh, presenter, we have when the patient is admitted to the ICU and is becoming critically ill, we have really limited uh, options except of supportive care, the dexamethasone, of course, but just level 2A evidence to add tocilizumab on top of the treatment. And again, we have a high mortality still in this patient category. So complement in COVID-19 is a key role and especially for C5A. It is associated with endothelial damage. C5A is known to activate neutrophils. 
result in release of tissue factor and in the end leads to microangiopathy with thrombosis. All features of severe COVID-19 in which complements may drive this. And what we have right now is a first-in-class anti-CD5A monoclonal antibody, filobelimab, which binds very specific high affinity to epitope. It blocks C5A up to 100%. And what is very important to, to, to understand and remember is in comparison with other complement inhibitors more upstream, C5A is totally downstream and it leaves intact the C5B9, the MEC, the membrane attack complex, which may prevent onset of supra-infections, uh, which is the case with other complement inhibitors. So it has a very nice safety profile. So I will, uh, uh, in a few minutes, present the phase three results, but it was part of an adaptive phase two, three design. So we first investigated in a phase two, whether it's safe uh, to administer uh, filobelimab in severe COVID-19 patients, but also to see uh, what is the best design uh, regarding endpoint? So what we enrolled were early intubated uh, or dependent on oxygen uh, uh, at the ward patient COVID-19 um, with a primary endpoint on PF ratio at day five. At that time, we thought it would be a, a proper endpoint. We also had secondary endpoints on 28-day mortality and, of course, again, the safety. So what did we show? We showed it's safe in severe COVID-19 patient to administer filobelimab. Um, we had no more uh, side effects, also no more supra-infection, uh, uh, but the PF ratio is not the proper endpoint. And what we know right now about the disease of COVID-19, that we have a lot of thrombotic complications in the pulmonary compartment, which results in uh, perfusion, ventilation mismatches. And if you improve the perfusion, it may in the end result in a deterioration of your PF ratio while the patient actually is doing better. So the PF ratio is not a proper endpoint. That's what we learned. What we did see, however, was a 50% lower all-cause mortality rate in the filobelimab treatment arm, uh, which was supported also with other endpoints on organ failure. Um, so filobelimab had really a strong signal in towards better outcome. Again, what we knew already, but it was good to confirm, is that C5A is highly activated in severe COVID-19 and that filobelimab is very well able to control C5A levels um, in COVID-19. So that was the first step, and that made also the phase three trial in which we finally uh, ended up with the 28-day all-cause mortality as primary endpoint. The other thing we learned from the phase two is that the effect was most present in the severely critically ill COVID-19 patients. That's also why we made the inclusion criteria only critically ill intubated patients. However, early in their ICU setting, so within 48 hours of intubation, patients were enrolled with key secondary endpoints assessed as well. So here we go, and um, the results. The baseline characteristics, here you see it's uh, 369 patients enrolled, uh, quite well balanced. It was randomized, of course. The only thing what is good to, to remark is on the WHO scale, you see that there is an, an, a trend towards some more patients in the, um, the seven uh, scale um, in the placebo group. Um, which is important to remember because with the predefined secondary endpoints, I will come back to that. Um, also very important, also for me as an intensivist, is how representative is this patient population for me at the bedside when I'm treating patients? Well, it's very representative. Uh, almost 100% of the patients received corticosteroids and also uh, a significant part of the patients, 20%, uh, received uh, tocilizumab or kind of immunomodulators in this setting. So primary endpoint, 28-day all-cause mortality, filobelimab, 31.7% mortality, and placebo, 41% um, mortality, which was site-stratified, which I will come up uh, on the next slide. And what does it mean? It means it has a, a, a clinical meaningful benefit with one additional life save for every 10 filobelimab treated participants, a very important finding. However, this was uh, site stratified with a p-value of 0.09er. 
So why is it important to stress this out? There was an FDA request while the original protocol defined analysis had no stratification. They requested because of the guidelines, say you, if you randomize by site, that you should also do the analysis stratification by site. However, this model does not correct for very small sites properly and also not with low enrollments and especially not if there's an imbalance between the patients receiving placebo and filobelumab. And here in this trial, there were relatively a few small sites with only one or two enrollments with also preferable placebo by uh, uh, accident in this setting, which was by coincidence. And if you go back to the uh, per protocol uh, original defined analysis, it is significant. And also all other approaches you could do in a post hoc setting were significant. There were also nine patients missing for the endpoints in both arms. If we do multiple imputation, again, it is strongly significant. So if we go and for the 60-day mortality, um, again, um, the, the impact of filobelumab remains. So it is a really long-term effect. We are really saving patients. So filobelumab on 60-day has a 36.5 mortality compared to placebo 47.2 mortality. So one additional life will save for every nine patients treated with filobelumab. Again, the p-value in a per-site uh, stratification uh, analysis is 0.08. But if we do um, the analysis supplementary, I showed also for the 28-day, again, it hits strong significance. We had pre-specified subgroup analysis. We looked in the Western Europe uh, group, and here we had a huge uh, effect, a 43% relative reduction in 28-day mortality on top of standard care, including dexamethasone, tocilizumab. Um, and so in Western Europe, we had one additional life save for every six patients treated at day 28 and every seven patients at day 60, again, on top of standard care. And here, what I mentioned already at the baseline, it's important to remember that there seemed to be a bit of imbalance, but then if we, in a pre-specified subgroup analysis, analyze for the more severe patient with a baseline ordinal scale of seven or a baseline AODS severe with a PF ratio below 100, or the patient with already renal failure, all those secondary endpoints, subgroup pre-specified are strongly significant in favor of filobelumab. Also for kidney failure and the need for renal replacement, again, we show that filobelumab is uh, superior to placebo. And again, what is very important to see what the safety profile is of filobelumab. And here is what we see is that there is no increase in infections or adverse events. And again, this is also because filobelumab preserves the MEC. So we have no difference in infection compared to other complement inhibitors in COVID-19 trials, which had uh, a negative effect um, on secondary infections. But again, with filobelumab, we have a very nice safety profile. So if we go to the summary, for the primary endpoint of 28-day all-cause mortality, filobelumab demonstrated a clinical meaningful benefit. Pre-specified and post-hoc analysis suggests robust reduction in mortality at day 28 and day 60 in filobelumab-treated patients compared to placebo. We had a significant treatment benefit in predefined analysis of Western European patient population with a 43% relative reduction in 28-day all-cause mortality on top of standard care. Significant treatment benefit in all three predefined subgroup analysis of patients with higher disease severity at baseline. And again, a favorable safety profile for filobelumab confirmed in this critically ill patient population. For me, as a physician and intensivist, personally, filobelumab should be considered as a new additional treatment option in intubated COVID-19 patients, pending approval, of course, of the authorities. And also, these data suggest that we uh, need future research, and there is a possible role for filobelumab in the treatment of non-COVID-19 ARDS patients. Of course, this was a huge team effort, and I would like to thank everyone who made it possible to have this trial done and has this clinical and significant and meaningful impact for patient care 
in severe COVID-19 patients in the ICU. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Alexander Blart. Um, I, we have a few questions and I will ask everyone to not forget to place your questions in the box uh, below. So um, the first question is, uh, you, you, you talked about uh, coagulopathies and uh, risk. Um, so we have to select patients who are not to receive based on the risk of uh, thrombosis or something like that. I, I, that's a question for you. Uh, no, so so the, the the patients were also allowed when they had an increased risk of thrombosis. So so there was no selection for that. Okay, good. Uh, and the other question is, uh, you already said that this is for recently intubated patients, but do you consider uh, me as an emergency physician uh, would like to use some drug to prevent uh, the mechanical ventilation required? So you think this drug will be uh, uh, something that used? that we can use to prevent uh, intubation and mechanical ventilation? So uh, I think that there, there could be definitely also an opportunity there. Uh, but, but again, what I stated that despite all the, the, the things we try to prevent patients being admitted, they are still enrolling mm -hmm. in the ICU. So, so this is also an area where we need to improve the outcome because with the mortality now between the 30 and 60% in the ICU, it is really uh, a huge problem. And, and although maybe the world has the idea COVID-19 has passed already. Uh, uh, I, I'm just faced uh, in my ICU, in my shifts, still with patients being admitted. So, so there is still a, a huge problem. Yes, and the last question, uh, do you think uh, this, this drug and this line of drugs could be used in other uh, disease and other ag agents like bacterials? I'm thinking uh, gram-positive or uh, gram-negative resistance infections? Yes, yeah, so, so I think there will be definitely a place also in other areas, so, so uh, other viral pneumonia, uh, other forms of AODS and bacterial definitely as well. Um, I think what will be key is to have a, a proper patient selection to have it more homogene. Yeah. I think we did very well here with the adaptive design that we first did a phase two to identify really the patients where probably the most uh, 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 benefit could be uh, uh, investigated. And I think this is also a learning lesson for, for sepsis trials, ADS uh, trials, that we really need first to find our specific patient group where there is a treatment effect and then start doing the phase three trials. Uh, and I think in the past, too often, we just wanted to have uh, a large trial where we enrolled any sepsis, any COVID, or any any AUDS patient. Um, and I think th this points out where we should go with, with trials in AUDS and sepsis. Well, thank you very much for your uh, kind presentation. It was an enlightening for a lot of us. And we're going to move over, uh, move on with uh, the next presentation. Uh, the next speaker is uh, Lurek Slabec. Um, thank you very much, Lurek, uh, for your uh, participation here. Uh, you're a doctor, a pediatrician doctor in uh, uh, pediatric intensive care and neonatal intensive care uh, ICU in the University uh, Children's Hospital in Zurich. Um, thank you very much. We're, we're pleased to hear you. Dear colleagues, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about the pediatric aspect here, uh, focusing on immunomodulatory injunctive therapies in children with sepsis. Um, I have no um, disclosures to make. What we'll try to uh, go through in the next uh, roughly 10 minutes are some aspects in terms of pathophysiology and biology as to why children are different. Um, we will discuss some theoretical implications in terms of the dysregulated host response to infection. Um, and we'll use this then actually to see is what have we actually learned from COVID-19 and um, multisystem inflammatory syndrome associated with COVID-19 before we talk about sepsis. The reason for this approach is that actually at the moment, the evidence base for immunomodulation in children with sepsis is still very scarce. So we will mainly focus on guidelines on hydrocortisone, but then as well, you know, expand to novel immunomodulatory approaches, which currently are being tested. So if you look at the uh, 2020 surviving sepsis pain guidelines, they recommend similar to adults to initially develop a bundle consisting of um, 
blood cultures, start antibiotics, start fluid policies, and consider inotropes. Um, if you look at the incidence, actually, then sepsis is a relatively common disease and mortality is very low. Um, however, if you look at patients which actually have received initial sepsis bundle and which are in shock that is refractory to this initial treatment, then mortality you now goes up dramatically with, depending on studies, either between one in six to one in four children that will still die. So reaching that stage of sort of refractory sepsis to initial resuscitation, you know, remains a very high mortality disease um, and such is a major problem. And the therapeutic options we have available at the moment for this setting are very scarce. So the question really is, how do I identify these children and what sort of treatment now would we use? I think what's key to keep in mind is that the majority of sepsis cases in children happen in children younger than five years of age, a substantial proportions as well in, in young infants. And this is a phase um, of particular vulnerability to, um, uh, due to the maturing immune system. And what you can see here is actually the, um, showing the development of the immune system that is almost oppositely mirroring, you know, the, the decrease in sepsis incidence depending with age. It starts with the, with the maturation of neutrophil function and T and B cell function until, you know, at the age of about one year, you then have uh, increasing response to polysaccharide antigens. And so during that time, of course, different defense mechanisms are important um, from in, in addition to those that are relevant for adults. What's key as well for pediatric age groups is that sepsis-related deaths in children are primarily fulminant events. And as you can see here on the left side, we chose the survival curves of patients that have died with sepsis. Um, as you can see, is that almost three quarters of pediatric sepsis deaths in previously healthy children happen as early as 48 hours after admission to ICU. So we see a much earlier pattern of death. And this is important to realize that as well, you know, the, the dynamics between pro and anti-inflammatory response system in, in children may be different. Um, and as we know that early deaths are more commonly actually harbored by, you know, massive cytokine storm, the overwhelming activation of the immune system with damaging to the host that uh, later on we see stronger features of immune paralysis, that, but this is more common in children with comorbidities. But the key question, if we want to design personalized immunomodulation for sepsis is actually that we, we consider actually how can we tackle the dysregulated host response to infection, which leads to organ dysfunction. And at the moment, our understanding of this host response remains extremely limited. And it is probably naive to, to, to propose that there is sort of one dysregulated host response, because we could imagine if we look at the severity axis from no organ dysfunction to single multi-organ dysfunction, that there may, may be different types of dysregulated response to bacterial infection as opposed to viral infection. And there is as well dysregulated responses to, to other entities such as MISC. And in this context, I think it's key and, and you know, as well, considering just the previous speakers, it's absolutely impressive to see how quickly the adult intensive care world has been able to, to, to generate high quality data on thousands of patients on highly personalized interventions. And there is a, a real risk that actually pediatric medicine will not benefit from this boost associated with the pandemic, then, because obviously we've had much, much smaller numbers. Um, however, there are certain areas where actually the pediatric discipline has, has had unique benefits. And I think these are key when you think of future, more personalized therapeutic option. And this essentially was the discovery of MISC um, as a new disease, which has led to very quick global learning with an unprecedented speed of data acquisition. Um, and as well now, you know, through the recovery study as well, a rapid pragmatic randomized trial. And that's probably where we should head in the future. Um, because within roughly two years um, of the discovery of PIMS-TS, uh, we now are close to see re re uh, release of randomized trial results. Um, and we know as well that based on the BATS trial, that um, what clinicians have been doing at the beginning of the pandemic is they almost randomly use different immunomodulatory therapies, as you can see here. And I suspect if we would make that graph for children with sepsis, we would see something very similar. A lot of clinicians uh, use glucocorticosteroids at variable rates. IVIG is not recommended anymore as a, as a default, but it's still being used. Um, but at this stage, we have extremely few additional you know, immune modulatory options available. 
What we know from MISC, and again, you know, these are data which were published within uh, roughly a year of the beginning of the pandemic, is we know from three studies that um, it is likely beneficial to use steroids, but it is not clear whether steroids are superior um, to IVIG or whether a combination them, you know, is, is consistently better. Then, so if we now translate this back to the sepsis guidelines, then as you can see between 2002, 2017, 2020, the, the, the wording of use of immune modulation in sepsis actually is still quite, quite um, vague. In 2002, the question was, is a patient considered to be at risk of adrenal insufficiency, then give hydrocortisone? Later on, this was changed to consider hydrocortisone. And based on the available evidence, which I'm just going to show you in 2020, um, there was no advice given essentially the guidelines stated give or do not give hydrocortisone for respiratory shock. Um, the, the recommendation states that this should, uh, should be considered if Fluid resuscitation in the base of prestotherapies are not able to restore hemodynamic stability, then, but there is no recommendation given on this. And the reason for this is that different to adults, there, is, there are no large-scale, high-quality RCTs available until now. Then, the, this recommendation is based on an aggregated odds ratio of 1.33. As you can see, it crosses the, the confidence line based on the three small RCTs with a total of 116 patients. So, and, you know, potential for harm as well, seen in some of the other outcomes. So this has clearly informed, you know, the need for a large RCT, which um, has been started in Canada and the United States, but which will recruit globally, led by Q. Minion and Jared Zimmerman. This is called the Stress Cytocortisone Pediatric Septic Shock Trial. But I think this trial will um, is expected to give us as well new information because the, the, um, the, the trial leads, they plan as well to, to look at markers that may tell us more 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 um, more accurately which patients are more likely to have benefit or which patients are more likely to harm from hydrocortisone and this is based on the work which Hector Wong published over five years ago as you, you may know Hector Wong sadly passed away at the beginning of this year but this study essentially uh, provided the proof of concept that out of a heterogeneous sepsis cohort we should be able on one side to enrich patients um, patient groups for patients that have a high risk on one side to um, have a poor outcome, but at the same time as well to enrich patients for those that are more likely to benefit from a certain intervention. And then we should prioritize these interventions to them. Other than hydrocortisone, there is actually only very scarce data available. And as I mentioned, only scarce options for other adjuncts. The sepsis guidelines do not recommend IVIG based on a very large RCT newborns, which did not show any benefit. If any patients are likely to benefit from, from IVIG, these would be newborns. However, there remains a potential benefit in toxic shock syndrome. For plasma exchange, um, this is being used at some certain centers, in particular for patients with TAMOF, where there is possibility of benefit, but um, uh, based on, on um, low-grade evidence. Um, and other um, uh, potential adjuncts, such as uh, renal replacement or ECMO, should be, to be considered. What has gained a lot of attention in adults, as well as in children, as you know, is the use of, of high-dose ascorbic acid um, with, com combined with hydrocortisone. For children at the moment, the only available data is, was published by Eric Wald and colleagues, which used propensity matching, which showed that patients then in ICU with septic shock, which were treated with hydrocortisone, um, ascorbic acid, and thiamine had substantially lower mortality compared to those that only had hydrocortisone controls. Um, and this is um, being actually supported by recent findings. That this on the right side graph shows the data, which are currently under review, that shows you that vitamin C levels in serum in critically children are low and actually are associated with severity, both at the time of admission to ICU, but as well as you know them becoming sicker in the next 24 hours. And in children as well in adults, the use of high, um, high dose doses of vitamin C at doses much, much higher than uh, the doses which were used in the currently published controversial RCTs in adults, which largely did not show a benefit of vitamin C. Then the safety of the intervention suggested much higher doses um, potentially you know, are, could be used safely. And recent interest for this area has been, been increased again by a, a systematic network analysis from Rinaldo 
Belomo, Tomoko Fuji, and colleagues, which showed that there is potential benefit of very high doses of vitamin C combined with hydrocortisone in adults. Then plus as well animal data, which showed that um, megadose vitamin C you know, um, has the potential actually to decrease the pathophysiology of, of gram-negative sepsis. Then this is where we currently are at. Then if you compare, however, what's happening in children, then out of the vast um, opportunities for uh, immunomodulating agents, the main trials which are on the way, um, including Marcol, Joel Corsillo, focus um, on GM-CCF. And we actually, at this stage, you know, lack trials on other interventions to what I'm aware of. But I'm sure that... Um, it is urgent, actually, that we do undertake these trials. Because at the moment, I think there's, there's a strong promise that as well for children, we use targeted intervention that targets specific areas of dysregulated immune response, and that in the future, we may have much better biomarkers to quickly identify patients more likely to benefit. But I think we do need to have the skepticism towards magic bullets. Um, in this, the key challenge in this field is, of course, you know, what should the threshold be because of the speed of pediatric sepsis deaths is important. We can apply this very quickly. And the key question, of course, is, well, how can we actually identify trigger for treatments that can then um, be rapidly uh, deployed, which are applicable not only to high, but as well to middle or long-term setting. And here again, you know, to close the loop with COVID, I think the opportunity here really is that we do need to leverage of global collaborations to develop personalized interventions, which can modulate this dysregulated host response to infection. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Ludwig Lapetsch. And I, we have a couple of questions here at the chat. Uh, they're asking if you, uh, what, what's your opinion on those uh, sepsis cocktails uh, with uh, steroids and vitamins and uh, vitamin C and another uh, mixed uh, treatments in children's, uh, especially in neonatal uh, population? Okay. so. At the moment, we do not have high quality RCT data. We have just finished the pilot study, which should be out for publication soon. Um, so I cannot comment on that yet, but I think it's fair to say at this stage, we do not know. Um, we do know that children potentially could be more susceptible to vitamin C deficiency because of the, the rapid growth rate they're in, nutritional deficiencies. And as well as I have shown, um, uh, children with sepsis and septic shock are severely vitamin C deficient. Um, the question, of course, is um, if it did not work in adults, would it work in children? So I think um, it's important that future trials do not repeat necessarily the same dosing um, that adults used to consider higher dose of vitamin C. Plus, as well, based on the network meta-analysis, there is no benefit of thiamine. So um, if at all such trials would be considered, I would strongly suggest that such treatment is not given outside trials and that the um, um, design will focus mainly on hydrocortisone and, and, and ascorbic acid. Thank but you. And we do not know. Okay. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as an adult uh, intensivist, I think the uh, same. <laughs> um, and uh, what do you think about the role of uh, so-called precision medicine in sepsis? How, how does this impact in sepsis care in the future for, ch for children's? This is the desirable path that we should take. I think the challenge is if we want to have precision medicine, that means we need to have markers which are very quickly available, which tell us very quickly which type of treatment should be favored. And at the moment, I think that is not, um, is not the case for many markers. A potential candidate is actually ferritin. Ferritin, you know, which has been used a lot around MISC, has been shown to be quite promising, actually, to identify certain subgroups of, of time of patients, as Joe Crisillo's work has shown. Another potential marker are certain gene expression markers, which currently are being translated to point-of-care platforms, so they may become much quicker available in the future. Okay, th thank you very much. That's uh, enlightening for, especially for those that we do not treat uh, <laughs> pediatric patients and I think it's useful very useful to compare adults and pediatric uh, evidence uh, to learn about our uh, mistakes of course thank you very much Dr. Lurens Lapet and now we're heading to the last uh, topic the last presentation of this session number six 
who is uh, in charge of Dr. Sarasis Sasson. She's a clinical immunologist and an immunopathologist and the head of the diagnosis flow cytometry at the NSW Health Pathology ICTMR uh, at Westmead Hospital in Sydney, Australia. This is a pre-recorded uh, session um, and maybe we can save your questions for, uh, for her. Thank you very much. Hello, my name is Dr. Sarah Sasson and I'll be speaking on the approach to immunomodulatory and adjunctive therapy in adults with sepsis and I thank the organisers for the opportunity to present. I'll cover the landmark corticosteroid trials in sepsis and lessons we've learnt from the last two years dealing with COVID-19. I'll touch on the concept of sepsis endotypes and finish with some current and frontier immunomodulatory sepsis trials. So we know sepsis is a life-threatening syndrome characterised by organ dysfunction caused by dysregulated immune response to infection, and it remains the most common cause of death in hospitalised patients. Despite decades of research, our current treatments remain supportive, including IV fluids, vasopressors, oxygen and antimicrobials. The panel on the right show our current understanding and model of sepsis. Uh, the left-hand third show pre likely predisposing host factors such as advanced age, genetics, environment, epigenetics, comorbidities and the microbiome. In the central panel, um, the sepsis syndrome is characterized both by a state of hyperinflammation, but also a compensatory anti-inflammatory uh, response syndrome. And then in the final third, we know that even patients who survive their septic insult and are discharged from hospital remain at risk for increased mortality and secondary infection out to at least six months. And so the excess inflammation of sepsis is mediated by pro-inflammatory cytokines such as TNF, IL-6, R12 and interferons, but also components of the innate immune response, including netosis and pyroptosis and disorders of coagulation leading, for example, to DIC. On the other side of the scales, the immunosuppression um, can be mediated by regulatory factors such as interleukin-10, the IL-1 receptor agonist and TGF-beta, but also um, heightened apoptosis of lymphocytes and T-cell exhaustion, for example, through the upregulation of checkpoint molecules such as PD-1. Um, and this compensatory anti-inflammatory response um, may predispose to ongoing secondary infection. So given what we know about the myriad of ways that patients can present with sepsis and this underlying variability in their own host vulnerability and these two sides of inflammation and immunosuppression. Uh, there's unlikely to be on the horizon a silver bullet treatment for all sepsis presentations in the near future. But what we are seeing is increasing interest in understanding the individual baseline risk factors and taking a more personalised medicine approach um, for the advancement of precision immunotherapies. So I'll move now to cover some of the landmark corticosteroid trials in sepsis. So prior to 2002, um, there were findings that short courses of high-dose steroids did not improve clinical outcome in sepsis. Um, but at this time, Anane et al. in JAMA published on a trial of 300 adult patients with septic shock. And they were interested in whether patients had evidence of a relative adrenal insufficiency and whether corticosteroids could go um, some way to improving this, that is to give steroids for at lower doses for longer periods. So they administered in one arm hydrocortisone, 50 micrograms QID and fludrocortisone, 50 micrograms daily for seven days versus placebo. And the primary endpoint was survival at 28 days. Uh, they included all comers for sepsis and um, each patient underwent a short corticotropin test prior to randomization. So on the right panel, we see that the primary endpoint uh, did reach significance with steroid treatment improving mortality at 28 days. And when the cohort was split into those that didn't respond to corticotropin 
um, the top panel, uh, the finding was even more significant. And in those without relative adrenal insufficiency or corticotropin responders, um, there was no significant difference seen. And in fact, 77% of enrolled patients fell into the top group of, of non-responders. In terms of secondary endpoint, the steroid treatment was also associated with reduced time to vasopressor discontinuation, both in all patients as shown on the right and in the non-responders to corticotropin shown in the top left. And again, uh, no difference was seen in the corticotropin responders in the bottom left. Uh, so the authors can concluded that um, there was the potential for one life to be saved for every seven patients treated, and they also reported no significant rise in steroid-associated adverse events. So by 2008, hydrocortisone was actually being widely used in patients with septic shock, shock who had um, hypotension and who were non-responsive on a corticotropin test. And uh, this study published by Sprung et al. in the New England Journal was a trial comparing um, IV hydrocortisone, QID for five days to placebo. And the primary outcome was death among patients who were corticotropin non-responding. Um, so in the left panel, we see that hydrocortisone did not improve survival at 28 days um, in all patients or in the corticotropin non-responders or even in the responders. Um, but on the right, we see there was a reduction in the time to resolution of shock in all patients um, and also in the corticotropin responders, um, which was interesting because that's actually going in the opposite direction of the original study by um, Anane that I showed you. Uh, so following that, um, in 2008, Anane published again in the New England Journal on the APROCUS study. Um, this was adult patients with septic shock diagnosed less than 24 hours enrolled in an RCT of steroids versus placebo. And this time the primary outcome was extended to all-cause mortality at 98 days, so around three months instead of um, one month. And here on the left we see that the primary endpoint was met with steroids reducing 90-day mortality by around 6%, so 43% versus 49%. There were also significant um, additional findings showing steroids reduced time to wean vasopressors, time to wean mechanical ventilation, and time to reach a SOFA score less than 6 and finally, uh, in the same year, uh, Venkatesh et al. published in the New England Journal with the Adrenal Trial, which again enrolled patients with septic shock within 24 hours and randomised to corticosteroids versus placebo and had the same uh, primary outcome of all-cause mortality at 90 days. Um, and this study had the opposite finding that steroid treatment did not improve 90-day mortality um, in all patients. Uh, but there were some significant secondary findings, including a reduction in the resolution of shock, faster resolution of mechanical ventilation, earlier discharge from ICU, and a lower proportion receiving blood transfusion. So reflecting on what the steroid trials um, have shown us is that there's really not a replicable agreement that corticosteroids reduce uh, mortality in septic shock patients at either one or three months, but certainly across the trials, there were a number of second, the trend was that a number of secondary endpoints did reach significance. So it's interesting to then compare the, the decades of work in the general sepsis um, field to what's been happening in the last two years with a very specific example of respiratory sepsis, that being COVID-19. So this is a summary figure put together by Dr. Priyanka Hastek at the Kirby Institute, uh, just illustrating in, in the alveoli some of the immunomodulatory um, therapies that have um, made it through efficacy trials and are now in clinical use. And they include engineered monoclonal antibodies such as citrovimab, antivirals, um, dexamethasone, and the anti-IL-6 agents such as siltuximab. 
And we were so fortunate to have um, the Remap Cap Group already established and they were able to use their infrastructure to really um, expedite the trial of a number of investigative agents through clinical trial and um, to advance them into clinical use. So here in blue, you can see that hydrocortisone efficacy was clearly demonstrated along with the anti-IL-6 agents such as tocilizumab um, and therapeutic um, heparin in moderate disease. Whereas on the left-hand side um, of the plot, we see that some of the earlier antiviral agents as well as convalescent plasma did not uh, reach um, efficacy. And the agent that came uh, later was the JAK inhibitor baricitinib, um, and this was published by Marconi et al. in The Lancet, and they showed the efficacy of baricitinib, um, which was regardless of prior steroid use, uh, regardless of prior remdesivir use, and independent of sex or disease duration or age. So it's interesting to reflect on why we're seeing so many immunomodulatory therapies make it into clinical use in COVID, um, but not so much in generalised sepsis. And we've talked a little bit about um, how that could be to do with the heterogeneity of the pathogens being encountered in generalised sepsis, but also I wanted to raise uh, this concept of sepsis endotypes and the heterogeneity of the host response, both in terms of their baseline risk factors for getting severe infections, but also in how their cells and their systems respond to the septic insult. So this paper by Davenport et al. looked at peripheral blood mononuclear cell gene expression, so that's RNA transcriptome, um, in a train and test cohort of respiratory sepsis patients requiring ICU. And what they found was two uh, distinct sepsis response signatures denoted SRS1 and SRS2, based just on seven genes, which are listed on the slide. And 41% of the cohort um, was categorized as SRS1. And this, these patients had an immunosuppressed phenotype characterized by T cell exhaustion. And if you look to the right, they had um, increased mortality um, over the first two weeks with a hazard ratio of 2.4, and that was evident in both the train and then the test um, module. And just moving um, finally to some uh, frontier uh, trials in immunomodulatory agents. So it was noted quite early in the COVID-19 pandemic that lymphopenia um, associated with poor outcomes. So um, these are all patients that had COVID-19 disease and those who died are shown in blue and um, those with severe disease that survived are in black and those with moderate disease who survived are in red. And you can see that um, plotting the lymphocyte counts actually um, stratified the patients on the basis of disease. Um, so on the back of this kind of work and, and other investigations into therapeutic recombinant human interleukin-7, um, compassionate access was given to 12 patients with severe COVID-19 and associated lymphopenia. And in the top right, you can see the IL-7 treated patients show a, a rise in their absolute lymphocyte number. And in the bottom right, the patients who survived and were treated with IL-7 had the highest lymphocyte count. And this was higher than those who were treated and did not survive or either of the control groups. And acknowledging this is exploratory work involving small numbers, but the trend was towards a lower mortality at 38 days and a lower rate of secondary infections. Um, so overall, uh, today we've reviewed the results from large corticosteroid trials in sepsis um, that delivered heterogeneous outcomes, particularly in regard to mortality, and therefore corticosteroids are not currently standard of care for sepsis, um, although may have some smaller secondary gain. Um, we've, we've looked at the rapid advancements of immunomodulatory therapy in uh, COVID-19 pandemic um, in this particular um, type of respiratory sepsis um, and look towards the future at more data emerging on the sepsis endotypes um, because this may really have some interesting implications for prognosis of disease and the um, development of new treatments and identification of new treatment targets. 
Um, the IL-7 is currently, um, the trials are underway in multi-centre trials in USA, France and Australia, and other agents under investigation include GMCSF, interferon gamma, pooled immunoglobulin, mesenchymal stem cells, and the checkpoint inhibitor um, anti-PD-1. So what will we see in the years to come? Well, it looks like there will probably be a trend away from broad protocolized interventions for all kinds of sepsis and probably further um, research looking into org um, organism-specific or patient-specific personalized medicine, and hopefully some of these will be biomarker-led um, modules. And it's hoped that this more patient-specific um, and personalized medicine approach will lead to further greater advancements in sepsis for our patients. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for your presentation. And now we head to the end of this session number six that uh, was called the update and objective therapies and, and sepsis and COVID-19 therapies uh, in the World Sepsis Congress Spotlight 2022. Uh, I would like to thank all the sponsors and all the organizations that helped spread the word about the World Sepsis Congress Spotlight in your communities. Do not forget to share on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, any other social uh, network you, you uh, use. And remember, the sessions will be released uh, weekly based on the World Sepsis Day and, and the Global Sepsis Alliance social media for those who wish to re-watch and share with your colleagues. I'm Luis Gorardo. I'm very thankful with you for your participation. We will see you soon. And don't forget to stop sepsis and save lives. See you soon. Thanks for listening. And thanks to everybody who helped putting this together. Session 7, an intriguing pro-con panel debate, will be out next Tuesday. See you then.